Testing, testing, it's on. It's on, test one, two. Testing, testing, I am definitely on. Are the boxes, are the boxes in the front on? Okay, yeah, testing, I'm hearing myself now. Hello, hello. All right, welcome everyone. I did get an email from Pastor Ben. He said he uh, was going through Houston, Texas for a little while there. Got a chance to spend some time at NASA, so that was pretty cool. And then they are now in San Diego visiting fan, uh, uh, friends and family for the last week that they're there and coming back very soon, I think in the next day or so. So he will be back in the book of Acts uh, next week, Acts 19. So read ahead on that. It, it dovetails very well with what we've been talking about in Paul's writings here in Romans. Also, I have a little announcement about a winter sports games that uh, is going on on Friday, August the 3rd at 6.45 p.m. This is for the Solid and Tribe uh, mid-year event. And it is in, um, let me see, location is here in Castle Hill. The address is on the flyer. We have some flyers in the back. And it's going to be a game of soccer, cricket, or netball. So several events going on, just a good time of fellowship and sport, friendly sport, I hope, and, uh, you know, everybody getting along and enjoying that. So get the flyers in the back if you have kids in that age group that can enjoy that. Okay, we are in the book of Romans. That was right. I forgot. Romans, as I mentioned before, how wonderful it would be that if all of us, as we're walking to church this morning, carrying our beautiful big Bibles in our arms, and they, they accidentally fall onto the ground. They, they open up, and they automatically open to Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's so well-worn and known uh, because it is some of the most concise areas of Scripture about the Christian walk and the Christian faith, and it, it just explains things. Even though it's difficult sometimes to understand Paul's writings, he was such a, a brilliant intellectual person, and and his writings, of course, writing that way in his style, even though inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then translated into a different language. It can be difficult to, to get, but I think that's, that's, that's pretty good as well. You know, when you read something and you have to, to go over it a few times and try to get what is being said there, I, I think it sinks in more than if it's just simply, you know, see, spot, run, right? It's just, you know, it's just some, some good things. So it forces us to mull over them. And as we've been going through this, remember... That Romans has starts off and talks about the depravity of man there in chapter one and goes into how God is just in in dealing with sin there in chapter two, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. It's not about our heritage, but rather what we believe. And then he starts to transition in chapter three about justice for sin, but but grace through faith. And then chapter four gives us that great example of Abraham who was justified by faith because he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, as chapter 4 goes into. Then we started to cover chapter 5, which was, anybody want to yell out, what was chapter 5 about? Triumphs, but there's a J word. Justification, right? Just as if I had never sinned. So Paul gets this climax to realize, when I put my trust and faith in God, I'm justified. I stand before God as just as if I had never sinned. Past, present, and future sins all just given and given to Christ and covered by the blood of Christ. And then chapter 6 and 7 that we covered uh, yes, or last week, and he 
He goes into all these things, says, okay, now that we've been justified, what then? Should we then sin more, that grace can abound more? No, certainly not. We, we, we are now realizing that, that God is living in us and our desire for holiness and righteousness should, should be alive in us and we should desire that. And if, if you recall the days that you first came to know Christ and you're just overwhelmed with some of the ideas and, oh, what do I, and you started coming up with, right? What do I do? I, if I go to church seven times a week or do I go four? And you start wanting to do good, right? And that's a good thing that our desires start to change and it spurs up in us this desire for righteousness and, and, and following after God. But what happens? These things start creeping in as we covered last week of legalism where we start realizing, oh, I failed. I tried to do this. I tried to read my Bible every day and I tried this and I fail and I, and we start setting up rules and regulations and we can't, can't get it and we realize We've fallen back into the law. And remember, the law is no, thou shalt not. No, no, no. And we talked about last week that it's not about no, no, no. As a believer, it's about no, no, no. as what you know in your mind. And we go over the, to, to the recognition that you should know that you died with Christ when he died and, and that we are a new creation in him, that we're alive in him. There's something new inside of us and we should know that, that we identify, we're part of his body. We're adopted children now. We're part of his family. We're no longer sons and daughters of Satan, but of God himself. And we should start to act that way, right? And that when we sin and when we do these things, we just put ourselves back into the bondage of sin, which we've been freed from, and that we have liberty but by, by Christ to enjoy living without having to sin. We have the power through the Holy Spirit to do that. And we went on and on and kind of climaxed there in the end of chapter 7 as it talked about realizing that there is nothing good in us. Nothing good in us. And to know that. And, and that's not to say that we don't do good things. I mean, even non-believers do good things. And it doesn't, but Isaiah talks about how even our best of things that we do are like filthy rags. They're, they're, they're nothing. That there's no good in us because even the good things that we do, oh, I hope somebody saw that or, or I make, maybe I feel better about that or, and it's the wrong motivation and God sees the heart and he realizes that, ah, man, there's no good thing in me. And, and we have this situation at the end of chapter seven where Paul begins to wrestle and he says, I'm wrestling with this idea of, of the old man and the body and the, the spirit and, and the new man and, and how these are battling it. And oh, wretched man that I am, I don't do what I want to do. And I do, and we went through that whole thing. And he finally comes up to a realization as, as Paul, being one who was a Pharisee among Pharisees, he said, I, I would do the law as much as I could. And he kept going through all this stuff and he said, oh, but I couldn't keep it. The more I looked at the law, the more it just condemned me. And he realizes, how can I possibly do all these things to justify myself, basically? And he realized that word how, the how, if you just take the little W at the end of the how and plop it over to the front, you realize it's not a how, it's a who. And he realizes there in the end of chapter 7, he says, Wow, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And so who will deliver me from the body of death? I think God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he realizes, oh, it's a who, not a how. And that's something that we need to get a grasp on. So let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word and we study through these sections, Lord, help us to realize it's, it's in you that we find all the things that lead to life. 
and to godliness. And, and we just need to surrender ourselves to your spirit and to the work that you are doing in us and desire to do in us in this sanctification process and, and, and wanting to glorify us as we see through these things. So we surrender ourselves now. So we surrender our hearts, help our hearts to be malleable and ready to hear your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we had chapter 5, which talks about justification. We had chapter 6 that talks about sanctification. That's that process as God wants to do a work in us, that we should just know these things and desire righteousness. And we talked about chapter 7 being liberation. We're liberated from the law. We are just, just let it go. It's dead to us. We were married. He uses that picture, right? We were married to the law, that perfect law. Now, I know I have a spouse that's very perfect. You know, she's wonderful. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's tough being married to somebody that's so good. And, oh, and the law is perfect. And, and Paul says, how do I get out of this marriage? The law is just condemning me all the time. And he finally says, well, one of us has to die. <laughs> it's the only way to get out of the marriage. And it's not going to be the law, so I must die. And if I die, then I can be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And it comes up to that realization. It's the who. When I'm married to Christ, wow, no longer the law condemning me, that perfect law, but it's Christ who shows grace and mercy to me. And that's why after he realizes, he says, I, it's not about how, it's about who. He then says at the very end there, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25 of chapter 8. He says, so then with the mind, Notice this, with a mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And he starts to, starts to paint a picture and getting us set up for chapter eight, where we realize that, you see, like the Trinity of God, the triune nature of God, God created us with a triune kind of nature as well. We have our spirit, and we have our body, and we have this soul, often called the mind. And, and when the, in the garden, when the, the death came, our spirit had died, and the body was dead. It just didn't know it yet. We talked about that last week. They were dead. And the mind starts to, starts to play tricks on us. And so when we accept Christ, it says we are born again. The spirit is born again. We haven't received a new body yet, and so we have our mind sitting there in between. And this mind is either going towards the flesh or it's going to the spirit. And this is the battle that we wrestle with. Do I do the flesh or do I go to the spirit? And that, that middle section of, a, of who we are in our mind is just going back and forth. And he says, the, the mind here, he says, the mind, I want to serve the law of God, which is love. But with the flesh, I, I want to serve the law of sin and this battle of my mind that's going to happen. And so in chapter 8, he's going to get to this point where he wants to deal with this idea of glorification. And glorification is, is where we have a new body and, and we are like the Mount of Transfiguration, this, this idea of, wow, it's, we're gonna know if we're gonna glow or what, but something is, is the new body. It's pretty cool. The glimpses we get from it, we don't get a lot. And we're, we're looking forward to that. And he starts to say, well, you're gonna get there, but this battle is going on between the, the mind for the flesh and the spirit. And so in chapter eight, the first half of that, he goes into this battle a little bit more before he talks about glorification. And notice that he's going to say, he's going to use a special word throughout this first part of this chapter. Let me, let me see if you can kind of, kind of hear it. Uh, we'll, we'll look over in chapter, in verse nine. Just glance over there. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, 
he is not his, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But the spirit, it goes on and on. 19 times in the first half of this chapter, Paul talks about the spirit. Now remember, the spirit is the one who's inspiring these things, and most of the time, Spirit doesn't talk about himself. He points directly to Jesus. But in this chapter right here, we get this glimpse of this battle between the spiritual and the fleshly, and he starts to talk about this. But before he gets right in there, that beautiful verse 1 that we've heard quoted many times, we like to quote it whenever we feel bad about things, right? It's like verse 1 says, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful verse as Paul culminates all these things. And he says, wretched man, and I'm going. He says, but you know what? Even though there's sin in my life and there's sin and happens and leads to death, there's one thing I can be sure of. There's no condemnation. There's no condemning. There's no hell at the end of that. We are out of that. God, God says, you are perfect before me. There's no, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you for the sinfulness because what does it say? who are in Christ, in Christ. What does that mean? If I'm in Christ, just picture that, in Christ. You you can't see something that's inside. Now, I'm I'm glad Tina's not here. Don't tell her this. But the other day, coming home, and I I got home, I was going home early, and I was sitting there looking at the clock. I said, "Ah, I'd probably get home and maybe have lunch at home, have a sandwich or something. But there was these big golden arches that were on the side of the road, and I kind of felt, oh, maybe I could just stop in there for a minute. Oh, it's been a long time. Well, it hasn't been a long time. But, you know, I, I, so I, I, I hop in there and get, you know, quarter pounder with cheese. And then I'll, and, and, I, and I, I eat it. And then I get home. And my wife says, oh, did you already have lunch? Oh, yeah, I've already had lunch. She didn't know that there was a quarter, uh, you know, two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun in me. Because it was in me. She didn't see the sinful calories and, and non-meat and the french fries that aren't really potatoes. I, I don't know. I don't want to know that stuff. Don't tell me. I know it's bad. And, and it, but it's in me, and she doesn't see that sinfulness because it's in me. And I look at that same thing as in Christ. I'm in Christ. God doesn't see. He doesn't have con- condemnation because we're in Christ. And I wish we could see ourselves like that before God as, as we so often don't. And, and imagine if we could see others that way. Wow, you know, I, I look at others around here, I don't know, are you guys in Christ? I, if we could see you, like, in Christ, and not your sinfulness, oh, wow, what a what a blessing that would be as we would look at each other with a different look. Now, notice it says there, continuing verse 1, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, it's not saying you're in Christ if you walk according to the Spirit, and you're not in Christ if you're walking according to the flesh. He says, there's no condemnation to you. Okay, but have you ever felt condemnation? Yeah, when I mess up, when I sin, when I do these things, I feel condemnation. Don't, when I'm walking according to the flesh, I condemn myself, I condemn others. It's there, but it's not from God. He says when you're walking according to the, the flesh, we get these things, but according to the Spirit, we don't. He's going to get through this and, and make that more clear. I also want to state as we're going through this that he's talking to believers, he mentions kind of in, in reference to non-believers there, but he's talking clearly to believers because many verses that are taken out of context of Romans chapter 8 talk about this idea of, well, you're not really walking the Spirit, you're not a believer in these things. And, and yes, we need to see the Spirit alive in us, but 
is a, if we see a battle, then that's a good thing. It's not about, oh, well, I didn't see them, uh, you know, all the fruit of the Spirit weren't in there, and then you go all these things. It's like, be really careful about that. That's not what Paul is talking about here, as we'll see very clearly. He's talking to believers, and he says, if you're walking according to the Spirit, you're not going to feel any condemnation. You're going to realize, the Spirit's going to realize this. But when you walk according to the flesh, there'll be some issues, as we'll see. Verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit, when you're walking in the Spirit, is life in Christ Jesus. And of the life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He said this law that he talked about before of sin and death, we're free from those things as we're just walking in the Spirit and have life in the Spirit. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, the law couldn't couldn't save me. It, my flesh couldn't keep the law, and so it was useless in that sense. He says, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become his righteousness, as we're told uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, you know, he, he came because the law couldn't do it. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us, fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he's just reminding us that we're walking according to the Spirit, not because of anything we did, but because of what, what God did. We're not suddenly keeping the law and then, oh, well, we finally made it. And No, he says you, the law didn't save us, but God saved us. And because of that, we have that freedom that comes from the Spirit. Now, here's this interesting battle that he begins to talk about in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So he says, look, Christian, believer, there's that battle for that, that thing in the middle, that mind. And you've got the flesh that's running around like that chicken with a head cut off that doesn't know it's dead yet. And you've got the spirit that's alive in you. And, and there's going to be this battle and that, that mind is kind of going to go back and forth. It's like, if you set, what, what does it mean to set? It's like, when you, you can decide what you think about, right? Don't think about pink elephants. Well, my eyes go to pink elephants. Right? We can set our minds on things. He says, set your minds on spiritual things. And what will happen is you'll walk in the spirit. But if you set your, your mind on the fleshly things, you'll walk in the flesh. It seems so simple, and yet I find myself so often deviating from this. And so I like to just think about this and say, what do I spend my time thinking about? When I have a moment waiting for a train, or, or, or when I first wake up in the morning and uh, I don't really want to get up and hit the alarm third time, oh, I don't want to get up. And, and you have a few moments there. What's the mind go to? Oh, what do I got to do today? Uh, wash the car and do the. Oh, I really wish I had a new car. Oh, a neighbor got a new car and I didn't get a new car. Uh, and we kind of go through these things. And, and, and you, you start to realize, you know, I'm thinking about the flesh. And that, isn't that what happens? What if we got up and was like, oh, uh, what a glorious day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And we. And we can start to just put our mind immediately 
forcing ourselves, really, just, just saying, I want to put my mind on spiritual things, which I think is one of the reasons, not legalistically, but to memorize scripture. If you have a verse that you're working on and you're saying, oh, I want, I'm trying to memorize a verse and this psalm or this proverb or this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to memorize some verses. What I love is when I've got a, a verse in my mind I'm working on, when I wake up in the morning, I tend to go over that verse in my mind, trying to remember it. And then I go through the day. And it's this wonderful cleansing. I mean, if you look at Psalm 119, which is that beautiful, very, very long psalm, it talks about the Bible itself. And it says, you know, in Psalm uh, 119.11, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And there's so many, if you just took Psalm 119 and just start picking verses out of there to work on, there's some wonderful ones there that just talk about how we can make the Spirit more alive in our lives as we just make our minds and set our minds on the things of the, the Spirit and not on the things of the flesh. As we look at people and not covetousness and, and envy and hatred, we look at them in the likeness of God and our compassion towards people who don't know God. All those are spiritual thoughts instead of the physical thoughts that so easily catch a hold of me because we live in this world and we think about bills and we think about the things of this world. He says, man, just set your mind on the things of the Spirit and what will happen? You'll live according to the Spirit. You set your mind on the things of this world, well, that's what's going to be what you set, you, what you do. He says in verse 6, for to be carnally minded uh, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Isn't that great? When I wake up in the morning or when I'm about ready to go to sleep and I put my mind on spiritual things, just peace comes across because that's what my mind, I don't worry about all this stuff and uh, what I didn't get and my job didn't get a promotion or what, you know, and I get peace from that. I think about when I see the word peace, right? Solomon, his name meant peace. And Solomon is such a great character study to think about as we get caught up in the things of this world. Oh, if I just had more money, if I just had a bigger house, if I just had that new car, if I just had, if I just had, look at Solomon, look at Ecclesiastes, Solomon had it all. He had power, he was smart, he studied science, he, he had, guys, he had all the women he could think of, right? And he said, you know what? I couldn't find happiness in this stuff. It was just horrible. He says, vanity, vanity, all, I, I tried this and I tried that. And this guy just had it all. And it was just vanity. And he just got, just caused depression as he was searching for things in all the wrong places, as they say. And so he is a great example of that. But when we put our mind on spiritual things, wow, it's life and it's peace. And then the warning in verse 7 says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. He's saying when you're carnally minded, you're no longer looking at God's way. You're looking at my way. I did it my way. You know, when, you, when you're thinking of the fleshly things, it's not under the law of God. You're not thinking of God's plan and God's way. You're, you're, you're not subject to God's law. You're doing it your way. And indeed, it can't be God's way because it's your way and they're going to be at enmity of each other. In verse 8, it says, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
That's a sobering kind of thing because I want to please God. I think all of us in this room would say, I, I want God to look down and be pleased with us. Now, don't get me wrong. He sees us as righteous. He sees us and he loves us. But as a father sees, their, sees my son and he messes up or he goes down a wrong path, oh, it just bugs me, right? And our father sees us make bad mistakes that lead to death and sin and problems, and he just loves us and he doesn't want to see that happen. So in verse 9, as we kind of mentioned before, he says, but you, talking to us, the believers, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Now, again, this is talking to believers, but what we get confused about is this idea of dwell. It's like, oh, wait, uh, okay, uh, the spirit of... We're not going to walk according to the flesh, and the Spirit dwells in me. But I thought when I accepted Christ, the Spirit came to dwell in me. And then, but now it's saying that if I'm walking according to the flesh, maybe the Spirit's not even in me. Ooh, and we start, oh, my, how am I saved? Uh, we have to understand the wording here, what Paul is talking about. When he says dwell, this word dwell in the Greek talks about cohabitation in comfort. This idea of cohabitating. So the Spirit is in me. But have you ever had a, uh, someone visit, or if maybe you visited someone and you're staying at their house and you just don't feel very welcome? They're like, oh, see ya, here's a key, and I don't, you know, they, they, I, I've never really felt that, but, you know, you get somebody that comes in your home and then you just don't make them welcome? That's the idea of the Spirit. The Spirit's in us, but He's not dwelling. He's not cohabitating with us. He's not hanging out with us because he feels very uncomfortable being where you're going and what you're thinking and what you're doing. It's, it's not a, a, a good thing. He's not dwelling. He's not cohabitating with us. So he says, when you're not walking this, the, the Spirit, when you're not thinking of spiritual things, when you're just in carnality, he says, the Spirit's not dwelling or cohabitating with you. If you're not, if he does not have the Spirit of Christ, it's not his. And verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So you've got this battle, but you have life and death. It shouldn't be a battle. It is. But our, our flesh is dying and dead if we could just realize that. And remember, whenever I go for fleshly things and carnality and these things, it leads to death. It leads to problems. It leads to yuckiness. And, and when I follow after Christ and when I follow the spirit and I'm, I'm in the spiritual things, it leads to life and it leads to peace and it leads, I just know these things intellectually, but I fall victim of these so often. He's telling us, man, if you're in Christ, you know, the, the body's dead because of sin. The spirit's alive. Righteousness is there, available to you. But, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you or is at home with you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we think about our bodies being dead but yet, it is still there. Let me see. No, not maybe dead. I don't know. But he says, I'm going to give you life in your bodies even now. Life. This dead body is going to have life, and there's going to be less of a battle because the, the fleshly desires, the desires of my body will be in line with what God is having me do because the Spirit's alive and strong in me. And, and he, God wants to get us to a point where I just have the Spirit so strong in me that I can do whatever I want in the flesh, not like carnality flesh, but I can do whatever I want because God has made my flesh alive and doing and serving God. So that's where that, that, that change comes from. Oh, I need to, 
to make this body and, and make it suffer and do all these bad things so that they just, and you get the, you know, the monks and all these things that try to, try to, to push down the, the body. It's like, no, no, no. Just make the spirit strong and the body will come along. You know, just, just focus on the spirit and your body will start doing what it should do. And that's the whole beauty of what the Christian walk should be rather than the do's and the don'ts and the guilt that comes from when I mess up. It's like, well, that's not me. That's the flesh who lives in me. That's the sin that dwells in me. Let it go and just keep going and feed the Spirit. And just make it a litmus test as you realize you living for the flesh and, and the, the, the carnality. You say, man, the Spirit's just not very strong in me. Let me start to deal with that, the who. Let me deal with the who, the Spirit in me, to be stronger and then everything else will start to work out. My marriage will be better. My family will be better. My workforce will be better. My attitude will be better. Everything. When I just build up the spirit that's in my life. And he says, uh, verse, where did I leave off? Verse 15. If you did not receive the spirit of bondage, or for you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that beautiful picture of God being our Father, not enmity with God. And he says, this, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together glorified together. And he starts to turn it now to this idea of glorification. He talks about, hey, you know, we've received, we haven't received the spirit of bondage and fear. We have the spirit of adoption, that he's our father. And, and that spirit is telling us we're children of God and whispers in our ears, we're heirs, we're heirs of Christ. We've been given all these kinds of things if we just allow the spirit to do a work in our lives. I like to tell people, you know, the, the New Testament is, is wonderful, of course. It's the, the, the principles that we live by and things like that. But I hope we study a lot of the Old Testament because the Old Testament are pictures of the New Testament principles. We see people's lives in the Old Testament and we see the things that happen in their lives and it points to principles in the New Testament. And this principle of the Spirit being alive in us and, and doing a work in us and that, that He's our Father, I think about Remember when the children of Israel uh, brought the Ark of Covenant against the Philistines and he thought, oh, we'll have victory if we bring the Ark of the Covenant with us in battle. But God wasn't in that. They were doing it in the flesh. They thought, oh, we're going to win. And they bring the Ark in, but the Philistines capture the Ark and the Philistines win. The Ark of God, that, that idea of the presence of God, of course, it didn't contain God, but the idea there. And so what did the Philistines do? They're like, oh, let's put it into the the temple of Dagon, right? They put the ark in the temple of Dagon to show that Dagon is more powerful than the God of Israel. Oh, we'll, we'll put it at his feet and, and Dagon is so wonderful. And they, they go away and they come back the next day and Dagon is flat on his face, like worshiping the ark. I mean, I just get this picture of, you know, and Dagon's this, this, uh, this fish, half fish, half man kind of creature and, and he's fallen on his face there and they, they walk in and they're like, oh, uh, Dagon fell on his face uh, before the ark there. Uh, this is something that's fishy here. And so they take the fish and prod him back up. You know, they, they set him back up. And, and 
why they didn't start to think about that, but they, they leave. They come back the next day, and not only did Dagon fall, but his, it says his head and his hands were on the threshold, on the door, like trying to get out of the room. And Dagon, their, their God, their God of, you know, what they were worshiping, he was trying to get out of the presence of God. And I look at that as the Spirit of God in me, because I have Dagons in my life. I have this, the, the idols in my life. And oftentimes I try to get rid of them and do these things. All I gotta do is get the ark, get the Spirit, and put it in there, and you know what's going to happen to Dagon? It's going to try to run away because the Spirit of God is there and just dwells in us. And the beautiful picture of the, the Heavenly Father that's our, our God, and, and we're, we're joint heirs. Now, notice there it says in verse 17, we're joint heirs. As we look at one another, do we see joint heirs? And do we see that we are being glorified being glorified to one another. I mean, I look around the room and I say, you know, I see Bob over there. I don't know if he's glorified or not. I don't know if he's a joint heir. I see some problems in him and I see a few problems over here and there. You know, I just pick on, no, I won't pick on anybody else, just Bob. Uh, you just, how we, how do we look at others, right? Isn't it just, we're being glorified and we are, as we're going to see, glorified before God. We're in Christ. So help us not to only look at that and see the Spirit alive, in, but help us to pray for one another, that the Spirit can be alive in other people's lives instead of, I don't know, they seem to be doing this and doing that, and we're critical, and there's no condemnation from God on them. Why am I condemning them? You know, there's a point, and we talk about the, the fruit of the Spirit, and there's the, the wisdom there, but help us to be people who are realizing that oh, there's no good in me, and there's no good in the other people around us, and yet we're in Christ. And the Spirit is alive, and let's pray for one another that the Spirit is alive and encourage one another to make the Spirit alive instead of just criticizing one another as we so often do. And then in verse 18, he's now finally starting kind of getting to this idea of glorification. He talks about we're also glorified. So we justify just as if we've never sinned. We're being sanctified, being made more in the likeness of God, and eventually we'll be glorified. This idea of new body, this, this perfection that God is working towards. And he's going to cover these things. And he talks about there, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he starts this section after he talks about being glorified. And he says, all this difficulty that we go through, it, it, it's nothing compared to, as he's going to point out, if we are able to look to the future and realize what God is doing in our lives, we're going to have more hope in that. So he wants us to look forward. Now, when you look at this chapter, it's kind of interesting because if you come in, you might be thinking, uh, you might be depressed, you might be anxious, you might be having issues in various ways. This chapter is really interesting that you you might be in this situation, but when you study it, depression Anxiety comes from three things. One is from the past, right? Oh, man, all the past. And we look at verse 1, it says what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, past is taken care of. Oh, what about the future? What about what's going to happen? What's going to... And, and, you know, we glance over at the end of this chapter. He talks about, you know, uh, verse 28. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death or life or angels or principalities or powers or things of presence and not things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any of these things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, the past is taken care of, the future is certain, and then we're getting to this verse here that everybody knows, the present. Oh, the problem is right now. The things that are happening to me right now. 
It says, you know, all things work together for good to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And in this chapter, he says, the past is dealt with, the future is certain, and the present is also covered. And we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be depressed. We don't have to worry about these things. So he's getting into this section about right now, even though we're looking at the future, how the future and what we see in the future can help us with the present. He says, I consider the sufferings of the present time not to be worthy compared to what it shall be, the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he's pointing to that, and he's going to deal with three groanings that deal with our growings. He wants us to grow in groanings. Who likes to groan? <laughs> oh, nobody, right? Uh, I don't like groaning. <laughs> I like joy. I don't like groaning. He's going to talk about three things that are groaning for the good, ultimately the good. And the first one he's going to deal with here in verse 19 is creation. Now, some have suggested it's not just creation as in the trees and the, the earth, but also those who are non-believers, perhaps. He could, we could put those in there because when we get to verse 23, he specifically talks about believers. But he talks about creation generally that we see around us. In verse 19, he says, for the earnest expectation of creation around us eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Huh. So the things around us are, are eagerly awaiting for the sons of God. Now, there is a crazy things that come into the church on occasion, and you'll get this on the internet or whatever. Oh, in times. The creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Oh, well, our group is. And if you say 1995, you can be part of our group too and be part of the sons of... And this is a catalyst towards the end times as the sons of God are revealed. Hogwash, as they say. I mean, it's so simple when you know your word, and that's why discernment is so important. I'm just going to read to you, jot it down, look at it later in verse, uh, in chapter, excuse me, 1 John chapter 3, because it, it fits exactly in with this section that we're talking about as John says the same things in John, 1 John 3, 1. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Exactly what Paul is talking about. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John picks up on exactly the same idea. He says, the world doesn't know God. It's groaning. It does, it's, it's anxiously awaiting the children of God, the, the sons of God. It's us, okay, in our glorified state. The world is just anxiously waiting for us to be in our glorified state. I wonder why. Maybe it's because I chopped down a tree the other day. <laughs> you think about the world and, and what we do to the world. I mean, that world is just anxiously awaiting for us to, to get right with God because we have been given this, this world to be used and, and, and in the ways that we are, but we often abuse this, this creation that God has given us. And it's a fallen world. You know, it talks about the, the curse here. It talks about how it was not, uh, willing that it would be in this state that God has allowed it. When, when, when Adam sinned, 
God cursed the world as well, right? And, and weeds would be growing, and, and there would be toil, and this silly thing called entropy was going to be introduced, that things kind of get worse and worse. And this idea of the second law of thermodynamics, as, as I'm sure Adam was educated on that quickly, as things get worse and worse, and then if we plant a garden, it would just die unless he takes care of it. And when he builds a house, it would just decay if he doesn't take care of it. And that new car just turns into a piece of junk after a little while. It's just everything goes bad over time. All of creation is just tired of it. And it's like, I can't wait until God sets it right so that when I plant something, it grows. And when I make something, it stays. And there's no idea of entropy or the second law of thermodynamics as things just, just go down worse and worse. It says, for creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility or emptiness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It's like God did this for a purpose because he doesn't want us to worship the world, but he wants us to worship God. And we see that all the things in this world just decay and the things that we buy and the, the things that we want, it just turns into nothing. He wants us to see that so that we see the hope of getting everything right. Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So God is going to create a new heaven and new earth where things don't decay. There's no sin. It's a beautiful earth that we can look at. I mean, just you look at the stars, you look at the things that happen and the sun rising at different points of this uh, horizon every morning and God's grace is, is new every day. And we look at these things, how glorious that is. But it's a sinful world. And we see bad things in this world that happen. He says, man, God, that, that creation itself is groaning and desiring. And, and it says, verse 21, or verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So that's creation. And then in verse 23, he talks about a second groaning, not of creation, but of his, his people. He says, not only that, but we, the believers also, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit. So he's talking to believers. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but the hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. He says, not only is creation anxiously awaiting the coming back of Christ and setting things right, but all of us, especially those who are over 50, really groan because we're saying, oh, you know, you younger people in here, you know, you don't really understand the groanings, I think. We all have different groanings, you know. And, oh, my, my leg always hurts, my back, oh, groaning, groaning. I can't wait until the new body, oh. And I think God kind of does that, right? He talks about this hope. You know, the hope of a new is, is more profound when you see the old decaying. It's like, oh, I can't wait. And as we get older and older, we want that new body more and more. And he's like, we're groaning inside of us. And when you get up this morning, you know, and you're groaning and trying to get out of bed, oh, and stretching, just remember, I'm groaning for that new body. But that should lead us to the hope of what is promised to us, that we will be getting that new body, and we can just start our prayer in the morning. Oh, Lord, thank you that this is not the body I live with eternity. Oh, as we get up and, you know, get in the shower and try to get, oh, 
you young people don't understand, but you know, us older guys, we, we get it a little bit more. And he says, and if he gave us our new bodies immediately when we were saved, where would that hope be? So there's something that God is doing in us by allowing us to struggle and have these old bodies that are dying off. It's leading to something good. And he mentions specifically, eagerly waiting with it with perseverance. So it's growing something in us. Isn't that fascinating? When we were first starting this study in chapter 5, if you look back on chapter 5, when we first started this idea of perseverance, right? he said there in chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in what? The hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in what? Tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And then it goes on and says, ultimately, hope. He's just tying the bow here. He's bringing it back and saying the groanings that we're having are just reminding us that God is going to provide us a new body and it should lead to perseverance and make that hope even stronger and desire for that new body. And then the third one, which is just amazing, the third groaning is in verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with what? Groanings, which cannot be uttered. The Spirit of God who lives in us and should be alive and we make strong helps us in something that you don't often think about. You think, okay, the Spirit's alive in me and helps me make good choices in that. But a live Spirit inside of us also does something amazing in our prayer life. When we are have the Spirit strong in us, the Spirit tells us what to pray. Now, have you ever been in that situation when someone comes to you and says, you know, uh, there's a, this kid that I know and he's only eight years old and he's got cancer and he's got he's suffering and all these bad things are happening. And you go, oh. Your heart begins to break and you say, oh. they say, how, why? Will you please pray for them? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. What do I pray? Wow. Such difficulties. How do I pray? The Spirit's inside of us and says, Wow. Lord, heal that boy. Lord, take away the cancer. Lord, help the... And what I find myself falling into oftentimes is directing God through prayer. Do you, do you fall into that? I do it, right? Isaiah says, who has uh, given the Spirit direction? I say, me. I tell God, oh, if you, yeah. listen, God, let me give you some information you probably don't have. This is the situation. The parents are good people. Da, da, da. You need to do this, this, and this, and everything will be all right. And, and then God doesn't do it. Oh, God, what are you thinking? That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is not about us giving direction to God. Prayer is about us getting in line with God so that we can be used by God in some way in furthering what God has for us or for the situation. So, you know, I love to pray, heal this person, but God, if you choose not to heal that person, help it to do good, as we're going to see. Help it to be whatever you needed to be. And what can I be used to help there? Show me how I can be used to further your kingdom in this situation. So the prayer then becomes 
not about me directing God, but me listening to God for directions on how I can pray and how I can be a help in that situation. So that's what the Spirit does. And let me tell you, sometimes it's okay, as it says here, groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes it's okay to say, okay, let's pray. And no one says a word. That's okay. Because sometimes there's just no words to say. As that pain can be so difficult. As we've all kind of dealt with those kind of things in our lives. So the Spirit gives us that power. He teaches us to pray with groanings which cannot be uttered. And then he, he tells us how powerful this is in verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now it can be a little bit confusing because you got a, a he introduced here. It's like, who's the he? Okay, so now he who searches the hearts, that's Jesus, searches the heart, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Well, it's the same mind of Christ, of course, because he, Jesus, makes intercession. Remember, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we see this beautiful triune nature just right in that verse there. It says, Jesus knows the hearts knows the Spirit to tell us what to pray according to the will of God so that God's will is then done. Wow. So Jesus is helping the Spirit tell me what to pray to the God for God knows what to say. (laughs) So it's all working together as we allow the Spirit to teach us how to pray. And then we get this verse that is so often quoted out of context. What, What do we just read about? He says, man, there's situations that you are in where you don't know how to pray. But know this, without a doubt, verse 28 says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He says, just be confident in that. In the prayers that we have, excuse me, I'm just going to deal with my nose a little bit here. We know that that God is doing something, and we don't have the full picture. Remember Jeremiah? Oh, God, the the children of Israel, you're taking them captive. You're allowing the Babylonians to take over. What's going on? God, let me tell you, these are your people. You need to do this. You need to save them. You need to do this. God says, Jeremiah, shut up. Uh, God didn't say it quite that way. He's much more diplomatic than I would have been. He says, Jeremiah, just, I'm dealing with my children. They're stuck in idolatry. I've dealt with them for all these years. They're stuck in it. I'm going to bring them to Babylon, and I'm going to cure them from this. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it. It's going to be harsh, but Jeremiah, I'm going to do it. And it's going to be hard, but it's going to solve the problems. As we see in our lives and those around us, God sometimes has to be harsh. Sometimes has to deal harshly with us. And so I always pray, God, uh, I pray that these things in my life can be dealt with the easy way <laughs> by just learning. Not the hard way, going to Babylon or going through really hard times. But God loves us, and he's going to work through us. And when bad things happen, and Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world, and good can come from it if we look for it. The problem is we're so stuck in our own self-pity, and, and we, we just, oh, how could you do this? And we're mad at God and all this. We miss the good. We miss it. God says, look, look, good stuff's happening. People are getting saved. Wonderful things are happening. But you missed it. Oh, now you just think I'm bad. I'm a bad God. It's like, well, don't, don't.
don't forget that God is doing a work, and he knows all things we don't, so that's why we always say, God, your will be done. Help me to be used by you. So this, in context, is talking about how we pray by the Spirit, knowing that God's going to work it out, and we want his will to be done, not my will. Align my will with God's, and then I'm going to be okay. And then he goes into this uh, little section here, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see that stepping stone of justification and then going on to glory. The good is the salvation of souls. I, I, I hope you get that. The good that it's talking about there in verse 28, all things work together for good. There's not, it's not an accident that Paul then talks about salvation of souls because that's ultimately the good. Okay, It's not, oh, I had a flat tire, but all things work together for good, so God must be preparing me for a new car. You know, and I, I, I can't make bills meet the, you know, I can't, uh, pay the bills this week. So that must be all things working together for good because God has a new, new job for lined up for me and I'm going to get a raise. That's not the good that it talks about, right? And this verse is often used. Oh, brother, you know, you're going through a rough time, but it's going to work out for good and you're going to get something even better. And they'll talk about Job and all. No, 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 no. Salvation of souls. If you're going through a rough time, it's your opportunity to share their testimony. When you see others, it's an opportunity to talk about life and death and the futility of life. It gives us wide open doors to talk about salvation. Now, it talks in here about foreknowledge and predestination. and We all know how that all works. So I'll just move right on to verse 31. I know. We all, you know, there are certain things in, in the Bible that are just really hard to get our head around. Like... Uh, you know, the triune nature of God and, and predestination. Did God choose me or did I choose God? And all these, we have debates and all this kind of stuff. Look, it seems really simple. He talks about foreknowledge. And, and let's, let's just imagine, uh, I had the ability to have foreknowledge, which I do not. I'm horrible at guessing the future, terrible at the stock market, right? So I, 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 I know foreknowledge. And last week I said, you know what? I, I'd really like to bless the congregation a bit and, uh, and maybe we'll have a, a luncheon for, for everybody, and we'll go over to La Coretta and have some Italian food, and I, I pull Paul aside, and I say, well, let's, let's see what's, oh, well, we can't really do everybody. Okay, well, I tell you what, we'll, we'll do everybody that sits on this side of the church, and we'll take them, but not the people on this side. And so he says, oh, okay, well, well, how many is that going to be? Well, hold on. And so I go in the future, and I come up here, and I take a picture, and I go back in time, I go back in time. I go to Paul and I say, well, here we got Tanya here and we got uh, Peter and we got, and I show him the names and I count them all and I say, okay, so we can make reservations and then I can talk to you that week and say, what's your favorite Italian dish? And, and, you know, you, I, I know who's going to sit here because I, I could see that. Now, when you walked in the door, did you have a choice to where to sit? Now, I know everybody sits in the same spot in this church, right? Next week, really freak out Ben. Everybody switch. Right? Really, that'll be fun, right? We'll have the podium in the wrong spot. It'll just be, maybe we should face the church the rather. Just really throw them off, right? Pastor Ben will love that. But uh, yeah, so it doesn't quite work because I kind of know where everybody sits. But you imagine people still have free will to come in and sit wherever they want, but God already knows where we're going to sit. And there's an aspect of that, and it doesn't quite get it. There's some more to that, and, and I don't know how it all works. We, we can't fall into the trap of saying, well, God already knows, so there's nothing we can do. 
No, because the Bible clearly tells us we are to preach the gospel and make disciples and we're to do these things and it's important to pray for people and, and, and want them to be in the kingdom and yet God still knows. And how all that works, I don't know, but I know that God knows and I know that I'm to pray for people and I'm to witness and I'm to do these things. How those work together, I don't know, but I do know who does know. Ah, got it. Okay, now... Verse 31. Now, in this last section, I know time's getting light. I don't, I don't even want to talk too much about this, but just let Paul now, after we get it in our head, this idea of glorifying and how God is not going to just let us sit here. He's, he's working on us to get us to that idea of glorified. And, and look in verse 30 where it talks about how those he justified, past tense, who he justified, he also glorified. It's past tense. In God's world, God's mind is done. You're already glorified. It's a beautiful thing. And yet we're still going through that process in our mind as we're going through time here. But then in verse 31, he says, and we just get to the conclusion of things as Paul just kind of, okay, here it is. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. As he quotes from Psalm 44 there, just recognizing that we'll go through tribulation. Yet, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, or depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Lord, we do just thank you that we can come to this conclusion as we often so many times just fall into this trap of being saved just because we believe, not by works, but just by faith in you. And then suddenly think that even though we were saved by grace, suddenly we're being just being, uh, uh, being, uh, sanctified by works, that were somehow works plays a, a part in it now, Lord, just doesn't work that way. Help us as believers to understand that. Lord, if there's anyone in this congregation, anyone in this room that has not put their faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that even now they just realize that in their own strength they'll never make it to you. No religion, no, no work of man can ever reach you. It's futile. And yet, if we just... Do like Abraham and say, I just believe. 
that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by you, and put their faith and trust in you and say, I want to turn away from my way and go your way, that is counted to them for righteousness, and they're justified just as if they had never sinned, and stand before you as glorified, as a beautiful creation in Christ, a new creation. And for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, and wherever we are, maybe we've put a lot of laws and rules and regulations around ourselves. Help us to be free from those things. Help us just to take a sigh, just take a breath, and realize that nothing can separate us from your love, that you are wanting to do a glorious work in, in, in our lives. If we just allow you to, if we just bring that ark into those areas of our lives that we struggle with, if we just allow your spirit to be strong in us, it'll set our minds on the things of the spirit, and not the things of this world, that you will begin to do a work in us, not because we're studying the Word every day or praying two hours a day or any of those kind of things, but just because we're putting our mind on the Spirit and thinking of spiritual things and, and allowing the Spirit to be strong in our lives, the Dagons will fall on their face and rush out the door and get out of our lives, and we will see in a miraculous things and help us as we are becoming more and more like you as you do your work in us, Help us to not turn around and then have pride as Satan loves to whisper in our ears and say, wow, you've really done a good job. Help us to realize it's only by your spirit. It's the who, not the how, that got us to that point and we just continue that walk. We love you and we thank you and I pray that each one of us looks at one another as glorified and justified and free and in Christ and not condemning one another and coming down on one another, but being patient and graceful as you are gracious to us and help us to just pray for one another in our spiritual walks and pray and in anything I can do to help others grow in the Spirit and anything that others can do to help me grow in the Spirit, make it obvious to us and help us to work together as we are seeking after you. Thank you for your promise that all things work together for good, for the salvation of souls, and help us to look for that when we're going through tragedy, when our neighbor's going through tragedy, when difficulties come, Help us to see those opportunities to share the good news. Life is but a vapor. It all vanishes. But you live forever. Our spirit lives forever. It can live forever with you in eternity. Help us to realize that ourselves and share that good news. Give us opportunities this week to share these truths with others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.